Hi everyone, thank you so much for coming to tonight's event. Uh, we're here today to talk about whether we can believe in experts, a subject that we're seeing a lot in the media, especially in the last year, year and a half. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to talking about it with you. Each of us is going to speak for about 10 minutes and then we'll open up the discussion to the floor so that we've got a good hour to just discuss. Um, please do ask any question that comes to your mind. We'd like to make this as two ways as possible so as not to become a parody of the question in itself. <laughs> I am Victoria, I run on a platform called Economy, which is about trying to make economics more engaging and accessible for people and find out why so many people find the subject so difficult to engage with. I'm joined by Hajun Chang, who's a professor of economics here at the University of Cambridge, uh, written a whole series of books about economics from all angles, including Economics and User's Guide, which we would see as, I think, probably the best uh, explanation for the public about how the economy works, in my own opinion. <laughs> Um, I'm also joined by Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy in the Department of Politics and International Studies, who's written on everything from Brexit to the Euro crisis, so very relevant topics for the subject at hand. Um, seeing as I'm already holding the microphone, I might as well start with my contribution. Um, so like I've said, at Economy, we are trying to find out how people feel about economics, why they find the subject so difficult to engage with, and how trust in economics and economists has dropped so low. We've spoken to thousands of people around the country via polls, uh, but also via one-on-one -on -one interviews where we ask them everything from what they think the economy is to what they think an economist is, to how they would like to engage with the subject if they could. We found on this question of experts that it's definitely true that people don't trust them. We did a poll in the lead up to the SNAP election in which we found that only 4% of people thought that the information they were receiving in the media about the economy was reliable and trustworthy. 14% uh, of Leave voters trust economists, and 35% of Remainers. So there's a clear and interesting distinction, but even the Remain uh, vote isn't too great in terms of their trust in economists. And only 18% of people trust Philip Hammond, uh, which is a bit <laughs> difficult. Now, I think something that my co-speakers can definitely speak from, uh, from a more qualified perspective than I can is how economists can uh, start to redeem their reputation, perhaps by starting to get it right a little bit more. This is a big part of why people don't trust economists. They say, well, they say they're the experts, but they keep getting it wrong. Um, I think that, in part, there are flaws in the economics discipline that lead to these predictions being wrong, but there's also something to be said about the fact that the discipline is so unrepresentative of the public in terms of who carries it out, uh, that it becomes next to impossible for them to make predictions of how the world works that would really be re representative of the full breadth of human behavior. And we find that when we ask people uh, how they feel about economists, the main block is language and communication. They find it very difficult to understand what economists are talking about when they make a public statement. They're so covered in jargon, so ridden with maths and statistics, expressed in a language that feels so disconnected from daily life that it's very hard to make sense of what they're saying, let alone trust that assessment of how the world is working. Another thing that we find is that people find the economy itself very hard to understand. I'd be interested to know, and perhaps we can discuss it in the Q&A, how you would define the economy yourselves. Many of the people that we ask will say it's just money. Others will say it's a big circle, but they don't really know what's in that circle. 
Some will say it's a diagram. If someone's a little bit more confident in the subject, they might say it's a network with lots of different levers and lots of different sort of nodes of power. But even then, it's very abstract. Some people will see a budget, and others will say a relative state that can either be going up or down, that can be healthy or unhealthy. All of this isn't surprising. If you think about how the economy is talked about in the media, again, a source that people trust as surely journalists understand the economy and they know how it works, and yet they're giving them very contradictory metaphors to understand what the economy actually is. It could be booming, it could be broken, it could be fragile, it could be resilient, it could be going up or down, left or right. And at some point, you can't make sense of how all of this fits together. The roof is broken, we need to fix it while the sun is shining. What does that mean? Where is the roof of this economy? And how can I understand my role in it if the way that you're explaining it to me really doesn't make any coherent sense? So I think the contribution I would like to make to this discussion of, of whether it's possible for us to regain our trust in experts is that it would be very difficult to do so if we didn't find a way of talking about a subject that was more democratic, that was more available to people, that made sense. We find that when we ask people what they want from economics, we say, in fact, imagine that you were in a room full of economics experts, what would you ask of them? Consistently across ages and across backgrounds, we've been in schools with nine and 10 year olds, we've done interviews with 60, 65 year olds, you'll hear the same responses. They'll say, make it clear, speak in a language that I understand. Make it relevant, show me how this relates to my daily life. Don't talk to me about growth figures and stock markets because I don't see the links in my life, but I know that what you're saying is important, so make that more transparent for me. Transparent is another key word that comes out. Just tell me where the money goes is a phrase that we hear again and again. Um, available in terms of bringing it into education, not just talking about economics in specialist publications, but talking about it across the media sphere. You'll notice that certain publications like the Financial Times or Bloomberg will have an economic section, but other publications which are written for the public will just have business, maybe money, and politics. So it's no wonder people don't really know what the economy or economics is in its own right if we never present it to them as such. Most of all, people will say, show me how it's about people. Make it a human subject. Don't disconnect it in such a way that I feel that it's this abstract force that governs me from afar. If we made all of these changes, we could really turn this into a two-way dialogue between experts and citizens, rather than two siloed discussions in which neither really believes in the qualification of the other to talk about the subject at hand. What's more, we've seen countless examples of evidence within which citizens have shown their ability to engage with economic questions. I've had several conversations with economists, and this by no means represents all of them, and I won't say any names, but some, when I say what economy does, will say, why do I need to bother talking to the public? The public doesn't really know what they're talking about. Look at Brexit. And there's so much wrong with these statements, I find it really difficult to know where to start. But one way to respond would just be to say that it's not like public engagement in citizenship is an unprecedented idea. You've got participatory budgeting happening in different parts of the world. In this country, we've got the Citizens Economic Council, which is a project that's been run by the Royal Society of Arts to gather a group of people who are representative of the UK public, put them in a room with economics experts and come up with some policy ideas. I've been part of that project myself and I've seen how inspiring it is. People are perfectly capable of having these conversations and you might say that for this to be a legitimate democracy, we need to include them in those conversations. 
That's not to say that there isn't a role for experts, and I fundamentally believe that there is. There is such a thing as a specialism in understanding the economy and economics. We need people who can look at the whole range of policies that have been tried and tested in different countries, that can give us the pros and cons of how they might work, that can look at data and evidence to tell us what may go which way and why. But fundamentally, this is a subject about humans, about people, and about society. And if the subject has no way of communicating with the very people that it's talking about, it starts to become questionable as to how it's really fit for purpose. I'll leave it there for now and pass on to Haji. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Right, well, after that, I don't know what to say. I mean, uh, <laughs> you already said everything that I wanted to say. Uh, yeah, one thing I can say is uh, this uh, uh, quote from uh, Harry Truman, the former US president, who said that experts are people who don't want to learn anything new because then they would uh, stop being experts. So. Uh, well, you know, that, uh, he had this uh, the very homespun way of uh, undermining uh, important people. Uh, and I think uh, there's a lot of truth in there because, uh, you know, the problem with expertise, I mean, of course, uh, if you were a Maoist, uh, uh, you believe that expertise uh, doesn't matter at all. You know? What is important is your ideological commitment. You know? So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you should not believe these people at all, but you know, I, that, I think that's the wrong way to go about it. But we have to, well, first of all, talk about which experts, and secondly, that we have to talk about uh, the kind of uh, responsibilities uh, and duties of the experts. Uh, so let me uh, talk about these uh, two points. Uh, first of all, which experts? Yeah? I mean, of course, that uh, uh, you know, my own profession economics uh, has a terrible reputation these days you know the financial crisis the failure of uh, triple down economics and uh, the resulting runaway inequality you know, brexit the angry man left behind by the globalization what have you despite the fact that you know only a few years ago, uh, a few years before the 2008 financial crisis, this famous economist called Robert Lucas, the winner of uh, 1995 Nobel Prize in Economics, and famous uh, the, the economist from the University of Chicago, triumphantly declared uh, in the, his uh, presidential address uh, for the 2003 American Economic Association meeting, that we have solved the problem of uh, depression prevention. Yeah? There'll be no more depression any, anymore. Yeah? Well, only five years later, yeah, the, the world economy bombed out. Yeah? Ben Bernanke, who used to be a professor at uh, Princeton and then the chairman of the Economic Council for, uh, sorry, Council of Economic Advisors for the US President and then the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board at uh, the American Central Bank. I mean, he wrote a series of articles talking about the great moderation. So we have now entered this uh, state, thanks to the development in economic science, in which uh, that we no more have uh, boom and bust. Yeah? So that we have a terrible reputation, but let me tell you, I mean, that 
part of the game is uh, who count, uh, who is counted as an expert. Yeah? Because there were lots of economists who warned against uh, the, the, the housing bubble, the complex uh, financial derivatives, and many other things uh, that were advocated by the mainstream of the economics profession. But uh, these people were discounted by the profession because they don't conform to the central kind of uh, doctrines uh, of the profession. So, you know, actually you had uh, all these other experts uh, who were ringing you know, warning bells and uh, recommending different policies, but uh, the sort of uh, academic establishment and uh, those who have uh, uh, control over policies uh, went on to ignore them. So that we first uh, need to discuss uh, which experts uh, to believe. Hmm? Uh, expertise is important, but then you have to be, uh, uh, listen to the right expert. Huh? Now, this uh, brings me to the second question of the, the responsibilities of uh, the experts, uh, because you know, Victoria has already uh, uh, told you about the kind of experts we have. You know, they are narrow-minded. Yeah? I mean, not just in the sense of uh, the kind of uh, looking at just economic factors and ignoring, you know, for example, in relation to the Brexit uh, debate, ignoring issues of, uh, you know, identity, community, you know, patriotism, <coughs> however misguided they may think uh, these things are, you know, if uh, they are serious about uh, getting their message across, they have to engage with these issues. They cannot just say that the people who think about these things are stupid. Hmm? So they are narrow in the sense, but also narrow in the sense of uh, believing only in one kind of economic theory and refusing to believe anything that uh, doesn't conform to their own narrow theory. They are arrogant, you know, basically their attitude is, you know, ordinary people I mean, wouldn't understand what we are saying, even if they, yeah, uh, that, that were given this that are in their hands, you know, so there's no point in engaging with these people. And they are detached, you know, I mean, that they mostly do research on things that uh, ordinary people don't relate to. I mean, how many research papers in economic uh, uh, journals have you seen? Well, you wouldn't have seen because you haven't uh, read those things. But, uh, you know, I haven't seen many that, uh, articles about, uh, you know, the precarious jobs, uh, you know, hustling welfare state, housing crisis, you know. These are not concerns of uh, the, the, the so-called expert economists. Hmm? So these uh, people need to be put in their places. I mean, they are very good at certain things, but we cannot let them run the world. Yeah? Unfortunately, the economics has become the modern equivalent of uh, Catholic theology in medieval Europe. Hmm? So basically, it's an ideology that uh, explains how the world is what it is because it should be, and anyone who has an issue with it is uh, a, a heretic. Yeah? <laughs> so we have to that, that, that use the experts, but uh, put them in the, their appropriate places. You know, you know about these things very well, but uh, there are lots of things that you don't know about, and uh, we are not just uh, going to be ruled by concerns for our. Uh, that uh, wallets, uh, so to speak, hmm? and yeah, in order to do that, ordinary citizens uh, need to learn some economics. I would go as far as uh, saying that it is actually your duty 
two lungs of economics because economics uh, has become the ruling ideology of modern days and unless you understand what these people are trying to do, what uh, they are saying, there's no point in having democracy. Eh? It will be just a beauty contest. You, know? you like the look of the guy, you vote for him. Yeah? Unless you understand what this economic policy is about. Yeah? Because uh, now, I mean, economists are, are everywhere. Yeah? They dictate uh, not just uh, you know, monetary policy or industrial policy, they now yeah, run the schools, yeah? they uh, now run the healthcare system, they now run you know, the, the housing system, yeah? directly and indirectly, even cultural things. So you have to really that, that learn some economics and become what I call active economic citizens, because unless you become like that, who's going to uh, check these experts? Yeah? And uh, I'll uh, uh, finish my uh, intervention with that. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to say something not entirely dissimilar in terms of where I end up, but I'm going to do it a different way and talk about um, the Brexit term referendum and basically argue that um, if we're going to believe in experts at all, we need first to recognise where expertise has a claim and where it cannot. So if we take um, Britain's membership of the European um, Union, then I think there were three different kinds of questions at stake, which I'm going to explain what I think that they were. Um, one of which I think that experts, um, with some caveats, could have brought knowledge and analysis to bear upon. I don't think that they did, but they could have done um, in... Um, in principle, when I say I don't think that they did, I think that they that they did it best moderately. One where they could offer considered reflections on the dilemmas at stake, but do so in a way that um, makes a claim about judgment rather than a claim about knowledge. And one where they simply could not. So I'm going to start with the last, the question of where I think that they they that they that they could not, and that. It was um, a political problem that I still think sorry, that we're that we're living that with in this country that in some sense claims to expertise were applied to this particular aspect of the Brexit question, and that is the constitutional um, question. So if we try to put this question as neutrally as possible, you could say the question of the referendum was here: Do do you want Britain to be part of a European-wide political union? Or do you want Britain to be a self-governing state? Now, there's no way in which experts can resolve that question because it's a contested political question. It's what any individual answers is going to turn on their values, it's going to turn on their identity, it may turn on, uh, on, on a range of, of, of other things. But it, it's no good somebody who's claiming economic expertise saying, because of economics, the answer to the question has to be Britain has to be part of a European-wide political union. That is just misunderstanding what is at stake with the constitutional um, question. In this sense, it isn't irrational or ignorant to come down on either side of that argument. There are, as I say, it's a matter of, uh, it's a, it's a matter of individual and um, collective um, choice. So, I think that what we can see here is, is that the claims that were made by those who wanted to say that there was a, a knowledge-based answer or argument to at least to that um, question 
ended up with people making some pretty spurious claims that, ironically, you might say, some better informed knowledge of concepts might not have led them um, to make. And the, the example that I want to give here is the argument that was frequently um, made, including by some of the, the, the politicians during the debates that were taking place, that sovereignty is an outdated concept. I think Nick Clegg was particularly keen on this argument. I'm not claiming Nick Clegg was pretending to be an expert, but he was particularly keen um, on that um, argument. Now, sovereignty isn't an outdated concept. Sovereignty either exists in one place or it exists in another place. Is To say otherwise is to misunderstand what sovereignty is, and that is, 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 is sovereignty is, is who has the authority to decide. It's not a question of like who has the better judgment about how policy constraints that exist from the economic world, what kind of conclusion we should reach um, because of that. Sorry about the microphone, I did bring it a bit um, um, nearer. It's a question about legal authority. Either a legislature in one place is going to decide these questions, and that judgment when they decide may well involve taking account of external constraints, or a legislature or some non-legislature, often in the case of the European Union, is going to decide the answer to that um, question. So what we can see is, is on the constitutional question itself, it cannot be resolved by an appeal to expertise, yet at the same time, spurious arguments about claim about con concepts, if you like, expertise about concepts is claimed and actually claimed um, erroneously. Now, let's then turn to the question where I think that there could have been a role for expertise, and in some sense there was, but I think that it was um, misguided in part for some of the reasons that Harjim um, already talked about. So the second question at stake in, in Britain's referendum about membership of the European Union would be what will be the economic consequences for Britain of leaving the European Union compared to the economic consequences for Britain of um, staying in the um, European um, Union. Now, this isn't even with expertise, and I mean by that understandings of the ways in which economies work, modern economies work. This is not an easy question um, to answer. A certain set of assumptions are going to be made about what will happen in the future, that there's going to be a reasonable risk are going to turn out not to be true. And in part that is, is because in these kind of questions, is, is the assumptions that will need to be made are about political events. Uh, and it's very difficult, as we've learned in the last few years, to predict um, political um, events. But I mean, just to give you one example, is, is that it would make a significant amount of difference over the next five years what the economic consequences of Brexit will be compared to having stayed in the European Union, whether the Eurozone goes back into crisis or not. Now that is something that people can have some considered opinions about whether that is likely to happen or not, but the best that they can do is actually offer a set of risk analyses based on probabilities uh, as to what likely outcomes are. And the problem that we've got caught up with in economic forecasting is, is that we don't express um, those predictions about the future in terms of probabilities, we express them as singularities. Mm -hmm. And I mean by that, we have a really ludicrous situation where the Treasury says something like, okay, if um, Britain votes to leave the European Union, within six months there will be minus 0.4% growth. Well, I mean, you, it's, it's just not possible to make predictions about economies on the basis of decimal places over, over, over um, six months. Now, as it turns out, it wasn't not only, I mean, I, I, I can't remember that the figure was actually 0.4, but it was certainly minus 0.4, but it, it was certainly a recession. 
Now, as we know, a recession hasn't happened since June 2016. But what's important to see is that doesn't mean that a recession could not have happened. What it means is, is having a recession as a result of Britain voting to leave the European Union was one possible outcome. And the outcome that we have had thus far is another possible outcome. Now, if those judgments had been expressed in terms of judgments about probability, about what the likelihood of the different scenarios, that would be, I think, a lot more honest. And it would also have a chance of, of, of being more persuasive to people who, in some instinctive sense, do understand that it's ludicrous making predictions to decimal places about what's going to happen in um, six months', um, six months um, time. Finally, let's turn to the question, what I see as the third question, the third central question of Britain's membership of the, um, the European um, Union, and um, why I think that actually the claims of, of experts and knowledge um, actually could have played a more useful part here than they did, and partly that is because this question, I think, was insufficiently addressed during the um, referendum. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why it was insufficiently addressed was precisely because we don't have very good analytical tools for um, thinking about it, those of us who, who like to make out that we understand some of these things. And that is the question is, is, is whether Britain's membership of the European Union was sustainable um, over the medium to long term so long as Britain was not a member of the euro. Um, this is a question that in some sense I think went to the heart of the Brexit question, not least because of the sort of five-year or six-year um, set of circumstances from the co coalition government coming to office in May 2010, which also happened to be the month of the first um, Greek um, bailout through to that referendum in, um, in May, sorry, in June um, of um, last um, year. Now, experts can't give an answer to that question about what the comparative risks of the sustainability of that relationship, such as it was, are or would have been versus the comparative risks of leaving the, um, the European Union. But they can bring some insight, I think, to bear upon the question by looking at previous historical cases of political unions of different states that involve a, a, a state, and not in this case a rather large state in relation to the whole union that is in a simultaneous position of being inside it and outside it, or being semi-attached and semi-detached. And I think that Having people who can bring some historical knowledge of the way that these kinds of economic and political patterns play themselves out through time is actually much more useful for what knowledge can bring to bear on these kind of questions, like whether Britain should be or inside in, in the Britain, whether Britain should be in the European Union or not, than the kind of economists, and I don't mean Harjun for a moment, who may. <laughs> use abstract models with lots of assumptions that can be contested very easily and try to make two singular predictions without recognising that there are almost always different plausible outcomes in play. Really useful 
do you think economists should be making predictions at all? And to what extent do they just become self-fulfilling prophecies? If economists say something will happen, people will react in a certain way to that prediction. So surely whatever the prediction is, is going to change the behavior that responds to it. And therefore, maybe it's best that they don't do it at all. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, I have a, a dislike of um, predictions. So <laughs> in, in the sense that every time I'm asked to make them, I usually try and find some reason why I'm not going to make them. Um, <laughs> I think that, in, in one sense, there is no escape from economic forecasting uh, because things like budget decision-making has to start from certain assumptions about what growth is going to be um, or what um, projected borrowing is going to be over the next year or usually a longer longer um, time periods um, than that. So in terms of actually forecasting, informing decision-making, I think that that's simply inescapable and unnecessary. Um, you, you simply wouldn't want these decisions made without having some set of assumptions about the way things are going to work. Even, I think, it should be, they should be more probability-based than I think that they, that they um, are. What I think an enormous amount of time is wasted upon is academic economists and consultancy economists and think tank economists, etc., providing forecasts about what they think these figures are going to be. Um, it seems to me is, is that it's simply, in some sense, it is an ego competition in that respect. I'm not sure what use it is, what it is use having a competition about who's got the best forecasts for the predictions um, for the um, quarter. And I think that the, the weakness uh, of the uh, econ economics profession generally, or the, let's, the, the orthodox economists, I mean by that, is, is that they're simply not interested in history. Mm. And I mean, there's many other weaknesses, but I think that that is fundamental. And I think that they would do better spending more time analyzing um, economic change over time in particular political contexts, in particular sets of circumstances. So i.e. trying to understand the past better so we can understand what the implications of it are and less time making predictions that are not necessary about the future. Um, Harjun, my question for you is about uh, this idea of a mass literacy campaign for the public in economics. Um, what do you think would become the distinction, the distinction between a citizen and an expert if we had, you mentioned you wanted citizens to, to call experts out on what they're saying and check that it's definitely true. How, would, how do you imagine that relationship looking like between a citizen and an expert? Right. Um well, I think it uh, has to be at uh, a number of different levels. Yeah? So the, the first uh, level should be, you know, general awareness about these issues. You know, I mean, if uh, the people who are, are kind of uh, as uh, the well educated uh, about I don't know, I mean, the economics as uh, they are in English language or the basic mathematics, I mean, the people would wouldn't be able to the, the kind of just deceive you, you know, I mean, the, for example, Helen talked about this, uh, the decimal points, I mean, it uh, gives you the false sense of accuracy, yeah? for me, yeah? you know, I, I that a long time ago read this uh, book uh, written by an American statistician uh, called How to Lie with Statistics, <laughs> yeah, it's a great book, uh, that you should uh, read it, Darren Duff, uh, and, and that, uh, one of the things that uh, he said that still uh, sticks uh, to my brain, uh, which is that uh, if I tell people that an average American goes uh, through three tubes of uh, toothpaste, they don't believe you. 
or if I say 3.722, they immediately believe you because it sounds accurate. Yeah? So the, if you had uh, some basic knowledge about these things, I mean, the, you'd uh, not the, the have this uh, the kind of uh, false uh, sense of trust and uh, the sense of awe of the, the, the about these people, although these are fast uh, the fading. Uh, but uh, at the higher level, I think uh, we need some kind of institutional mechanism like uh, people's uh, the, uh, the budgetary committee and so on is a very laudable uh, attempt in that direction. You know, the ordinary people has, have to be somehow engaged in you know, uh, making these decisions. Because, you know, when you think about it, it's uh, very curious because uh, the, we have been kind of trained to think that economic issues are too difficult for ordinary people. You know? I bet you have very strong opinions about everything else. Yeah? You know, American foreign policy, what they should do with uh, North Korea, you know, <laughs> I mean, that, uh, what we should do about uh, climate change, you know, gay marriage, you know. Whatever your position is, I bet that you have very strong opinions about them and you have uh, the, 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 the confidence to pronounce them. But you have been trained to think that economic issues are just too difficult for you. So why don't you just shut up and uh, listen to the experts? Yeah? <laughs> so that has to change. And for that, uh, we need uh, some kind of formal mechanism to uh, take these uh, experts uh, to account. Yeah? Because uh, if it's that, uh, just uh, general knowledge, OK, I mean, it scares them a bit. But uh, without some kind of formal mechanism to uh, check these people, I mean, uh, what's there to stop them? <laughs> What's there to stop them? Right, we've got an action plan to formulate. Uh, so we'll up to questions. Uh, I'll take two at a time. Please raise your hands if you've got a question to ask. Try and keep them short if you can. Thanks. Let's start with this lady here. Are there microphones coming around? Oh, it's these. Yes. Oh, yeah. oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can share. Do they want us to? We can use this. Oh, it's, it's all right. Yeah, we can. Yeah, quite a big space. Yeah, don't worry. I'm really struggling with the idea um, of coming from Helen's talk, but she said the question about do you operate to be a self-governing state or part of a new world political union is really a matter of individual and collective choice. Because it seems to me that there are a variety of experts that actually might have some valuable insights to help us decide what our views are on that question. They might be, for example, lawyers, historians, political scientists, psychologists, as well as economists. So I'm really struggling with the difference between that question and the other one, in which she felt experts did have a role to play. Um, she talked about drawing on previous historical cases and ways that patterns play out over time. I can't understand the difference between that application to the I noticed when you first mentioned the, shall we say, training of citizens in, in the methods of economics, you said that without it, they would not be able to follow current ideology. You didn't talk about principles or methods, but ideology. Now, when you compare that with, say, English and mathematics, as you did, uh, or you could go on to talk about nuclear physics. It's not a matter of ideology, it's a matter of science and 
Yeah, like I always start to say fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it turns into fact in kind of jargon. But uh, you mentioned ideology. Can, can you explain exactly what you mean by that? Yeah, I see where the questions. Um, where I see where the questions coming from, and I, I wouldn't want to say that um, there is no knowledge that can be brought to bear upon the constitutional question. I would say, though, that there's a much greater responsibility, in some sense, for us to bring our own knowledge, such as it is, as citizens, to it, because ultimately, there isn't a way of resolving the question by knowledge. So ultimately, I think that everybody's answer to that question is going to depend on their sense of what political community that they want to be part of, because that's what underlies constitutional orders. So you could you could try to persuade, or you could try to make an argument, I don't think you'd do much persuasion, um, to say to somebody who chooses um, the continental or European political union um, option and say, well, you know, you do know, don't you, that, you know, most historical political unions that involve large numbers of state haven't lasted. But actually they've lasted for quite a century sometimes. So in terms of the time position that anybody's going to bring to bear on that question, saying, okay, you know, the Holy Roman Empire broke down X number of years after it began, I don't think really going to persuade anybody who wanted to be part of this present European political union and that was a reason why that they that they shouldn't be. I think even though we might like to think that we're capable of judging that question on the basis of knowledge, ultimately we will all judge it on the basis mm. of value and identity. People will believe in the idea of a European political union and think that that is, yes, I want to be part of, that is the way I think that we should be governed. Or they will say, I believe in the British political community and I believe a British nation state should be making the laws that, that are and whatever historical examples you bring to bear about the problems of the British nation state or the problems of transnational political unions, I don't think there's a way of, of persuading anybody ultimately on that um, basis. I don't think the question about the relationship of Britain being in a multi-state union without being in part of the currency union of it, I think that that's a more pragmatic question. I think that you could, I, 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 you still may inclined to answer it, bringing your values and a sense of identity to bear. But I think there are ways of thinking it through more clearly that don't depend on that. Whereas ultimately, I don't think the first one is resolvable by bringing knowledge to bear upon it. It involves in some sense our ideals and our ideals are not things that somebody else can educate us into um, deciding upon. Right. Uh, you know, I uh, deliberately use the expression ideology uh, because uh, I believe that unlike uh, natural sciences, in social sciences like uh, economics, there are always uh, underlying ethical and political values on any theory. I mean, uh, this is uh, basically in line with uh, Helen just, uh, what Helen just said. And, you know, I mean, there are many reasons uh, why it's uh, like that, but that, uh, basically, that, you know, uh, even something that looks as that, uh, kind of devoid of uh, uh, ethical and political values like uh, the market, there are always underlying uh, the political values and uh, ethical values. Hmm? So, you know, the 200 years ago, it was totally normal to employ children. Hmm? 
Now we don't accept it, not because somehow economics has changed, but because people have come to accept that uh, the right of children to have uh, an education in childhood is more important than freedom of contract. So, you know, the, everywhere the, there are these uh, the ethical and political values, and actually it becomes very dangerous once uh, the people try to tell you that economics are the Economics is a science like uh, physics or chemistry. You have to be very careful with uh, those people. And you know, of course, that uh, in this age of uh, alternative facts, that uh, you know, that, that uh, opens you to the accusation that okay, so you think uh, there are many different uh, facts and it's all matter of your opinion. No, it's not like that. I mean, some facts are more true than others. Uh, I would put it like that. No, because uh, as that uh, uh, Wolfgang uh, von Goethe, the, the author of Faust, uh, and, and uh, the, he was uh, something of a scientist, uh, apparently, uh, once said that uh, all facts, uh, everything factual is already a theory, huh? because uh, facts are constructed using certain theories. Huh? So there cannot be that uh, in matter of uh, society and economy, there cannot be facts uh, that are completely devoid of uh, those uh, the kind of, uh, the ethical, political, and other judgments, uh, as uh, Helen put uh, put them. Uh, put them. So I think, uh, yeah, I mean, the, I I use the term uh, ideology deliberately, but this doesn't mean that you know everything is a matter of opinion. Yes, I mean there are some technical things where it's uh, pretty clear what is correct and what is incorrect. Uh, there are some things that uh, where it may not be as uh, that, uh, clean cut as in, uh, say, mathematics, but uh, that, uh, you can do some basic sums and uh, that figure out that, uh, which way the evidence uh, that lies and so on. So you know, that you, that there are certain that things that, that, that can be you know, that considered as uh, that, that relatively the kind of objective facts, but in the end, even those things, you know, I mean, uh, we talk about GDP, but you know, it doesn't include uh, household labor done by women. Yeah? So, I mean, what's the justification of that? It's a political position. It's an ethical position. So that even when you are seeing numbers like, oh, the economy has grown by 0.3% in the third quarter, that already contains this huge value judgment that women's work at home do not count. Yeah? Questions? Down here at the front, we'll just take the two right next to each other, make it easier for the people running around.
comparison with financial scientists who give us the scientific rigor we need to understand the numbers that we've been given, not just a single percentage, but an explanation of the capabilities behind the financial mechanisms they're trying to describe. And then alongside that, financial scientists and people who have a political theorist or a political theologist to explain the political aspects to whatever you're being asked about. It seems to me that I'm distrusting economics because I don't know where the line between scientific analysis and political indoctrination lies. And so it becomes difficult for me to untangle. So we might as well just split them apart. Yeah, um, yeah, thank you for your question. I absolutely agree that journalists have a huge role to play. So God, this microphone spits back at you whenever it doesn't like what you're saying. Um, <laughs> there it is. He didn't like the joke. So a big part of what we do at Economy is working with journalists um, to find out from them how they feel about the narrative on economics um, and the extent to which they themselves feel confident talking about the subject. And it's really interesting because you'll find, particularly if we talk to people who we see as our audience, um, i.e. any average member of the public, the media is the place where you'll most regularly hear about the economy and economics, right? So the ideal solution that people talk about in terms of getting more people engaged with the, with the subject is get it into schools. Um, I think there was a poll that said 76% of the British public thinks that that should be the case, that we should have economics education be statutory. Um, but failing that, and for everyone who unfortunately isn't at school anymore, the media is going to be the next place that you're going to get your information from. Um, so we set up a working group of journalists with uh, people in it from the Daily Mail, the Financial Times, Grazia, the Independent, the Times. We did a, we did a pub quiz to get them all involved in which uh, we said, how much do you really know about economics? And thankfully, Grazia won our pub quiz, which was wow. really wonderful. Um, they did have a question, which was, how much does Beyonce's hair cost? For which I called Beyonce's hairdresser, but she wouldn't tell me. <laughs> um, I really did. I've got an email, which is unfortunately we're unable to wow. give you this information. But the point of it was, we also had some serious questions, but the point was to highlight that you can apply economics to all sorts of things, and often lots of us know more about the subject than we think we do. Um, a side note, the point is that a lot of the journalists that we've spoken to will highlight the various problems that exist uh, in media reporting of economics. Many will say there's really a sense of shame in saying as a journalist that you're not actually quite sure about the thing that you're reporting on and what it really means, but there's also a question of whether it's your obligation to go into depth explaining it. So, for example, is a journalist only supposed to say growth is 0.4% this, this quarter, or are they supposed to then explore, okay, what does that mean and how does it work and who does it affect? It's become the norm that you'll get the press release that says that's how much growth is. You'll write the story and that's the end of it because that's the culture that sort of emerged around economics reporting. So it's quite possible to report about the economy without really needing to dig too deep um, because of these cultures that have emerged and because of a sense of, like, well, I don't really want to be the first one to say that I don't actually know what that means. Um, However, it's, it, it feels like a kind of elephant in the room when you bring it up with journalists in that they're perfectly aware of this problem. Um, and we found a, a real willingness to find new ways of communicating about the subject. The problem is really just how much it's become the norm to report about it in the way that it does and the fact that it's something where the chain of responsibility 
is really difficult to kind of identify. Is it the journalists themselves? Is it the editor? Is it the person sending the press release? Is it the economist who should be sending it to the media in a slightly more accessible form? Is it the reader who should be saying, excuse me, can you explain to me what this actually means? Um, so I think, yeah, that's, that's a little bit of a response to your question. Okay. I mean, I think on the question about um, financial scientists and, and, and political theorists, I mean, I'm all for as many different kinds of claims to knowledge, if we use that rather than the term expertise being brought to bear. And I think that there is an issue about the way in which um, economics tends to dominate or economists tend to dominate what the claims to expertise and knowledge um, are. And I would like to hear a lot more from historians uh, and less from orthodox um, mm. economists. Um, I think that you, you also, though, have got to rem remember that um, academics over an issue like Brexit have also got their own interests at stake, or their employers' at least interests at stake, or perhaps a, a combination of their own interests and their employers' um, interests at um, stake. These are questions in which um, it's some kind of ideal about the claim to knowledge has got to be brought to bear to protect us all from us using arguments, in some sense abusing our power or our apparent power or apparent influence, whichever one, way you, you want to call it, of making arguments that are self-serving to our interests. I mean, and that is a, just a, a political problem that exists in you know, like a number of, of different forms that often arguments are made for spurious reasons uh, in order to cover up what is actually the motive from the underlying interests at stake. So although it's kind of in some sense comforting to think that there's a, a fix in the sense of, okay, more knowledge can be given and better quality knowledge can be given to people to help make their own, to help make their minds up. At the same time, I, I don't think there's actually any escape from citizens as all, and including myself and academics as citizens, is taking responsibility ultimately for deciding for ourselves rather than thinking that that somebody else's position, whose motives ultimately you are in, all of us are incapable of knowing, um, should be the guidance that we look for. Ajay, should scrap it on this? Yeah, uh, well, uh, you know, I think uh, those uh, two aspects of economics, uh, the financial science, if you like, uh, and political theology, uh, they should really be together. I mean, the economics used to be called political economy. Helen's a professor of political economy. You know, I mean, people used to be more honest in the old days. So before the Second World War, the, no country had Ministry of uh, Defense. They were all called Ministries of War. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, because that's what they do, isn't it? So, yeah, the, the, the only economists were perfectly aware that uh, you have to have both uh, the skills. Yeah? But uh, unfortunately, the, 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 in the late 17th, uh, 19th century, the economists uh, got uh, many economists got uh, the idea into their head that uh, they want to become scientists. This is known as uh, physics envy. <laughs> no, that, that it really is a term. I didn't invent it. Yeah? Uh, that, so that they started purging these uh, political elements uh, from uh, uh, the thinking, and you know. Yes, I mean, individually, people should and can specialize, 
So unfortunately, what has happened is that uh, once uh, the, the higher intellectual status uh, was uh, given to this uh, financial uh, science, uh, if you like, I mean, they became dominant and started uh, rubbishing people who were thinking about more fundamental issues about, you know, I mean, the, the, the kind of things that uh, Helen was talking about. And then the whole subject that uh, was uh, taken over by those people. So we need to go back to the old days and uh, the practice uh, political economy. You know, John Maynard Keynes are famous said that a uh, good economy should be a bit of a historian, a bit of a mathematician, a bit of a, you know, kind of philosopher and so on and you know the, that's uh, what we the, the should uh, strive for as for the very quickly on the financial the reporting and the reporting on economics in the, the papers i think i mean one thing that we see increasingly less and less is uh, the sort of investigative uh, journalism uh, in the context of economics and aditya chakravarti is one of very few people actually go behind the numbers and uh, behind the government spin and try to understand the economic reality and we really miss uh, the, that kind of uh, the journalism because yeah most uh, journalists uh, just uh, take down what the treasury announces and just uh, report the numbers yeah? without even questioning those numbers you know so the, for example this government has been you know singing praises of uh, increasing the self-employment and yeah, if you go behind the numbers, uh, a lot of uh, self-employment that has uh, increased is uh, either self-employment out of desperation, and most of these people are actually earning even less uh, than the equivalent wage laborers, yeah? or they are bogus self self-employed people hired by companies like Uber and uh, Deliveroo. Yeah? They are really workers who have really no control over what they do. But uh, the, the company classified them as uh, independent suppliers because uh, the, that way they don't have to give them sick leave, they don't have to give them paid holidays. Yeah? So, you know, things like that, you know, if you just uh, take down the, the, what the government says, I mean, the, you know, you're not going to the, look at those things. So, we need uh, more people like Aditya, is uh, really a pity that he's not here uh, this evening. Gosh. <laughs> Why is everyone always so shy at the beginning? Uh, oh That's gosh, let's take some from the middle because we haven't had any. This lady here and a gentleman in the blue jumper. Any of you uh, want to come in? Or any questions? Jin Shan, you were talking about personal economy. Even Adam Smith was um, still flattered by his own language on the things like. Uh, the wealth of nations. Um, can we ever be truly free from people's ideologies grounding economics, or is there always going to be some sort of um, thing, even the people looking at economics and judging what the experts say is still going to be crowded by ideology, even if the experts are completely unbiased, like a scientist? So, you know, is there ever going to be a point at which that doesn't happen? Uh, economics is an 
based on some assumptions about how communities act and how they do this, is it, how can we model citizen education and economics, if possible, in a way that creates citizens who not only have literacy and can be equipped with what's going on in current affairs, but also have the ability to critically think about kind of the core question of how it is that we live together and share resources. I'm wondering if you think that there's space within economics to do that kind of preliminary education, or is it something that should be left to other disciplines like literature and political theory and philosophy? Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, the two questions are related. No, I don't think there could ever be sort of totally ideology-free economics, because it's about human beings. And we have, you know, I mean, once again, going back to that Brexit example, you know, yeah, you may think that people who think about identity and things like that are misguided, but that's the reality. So you have to take it into your theory. So, I mean, at least you have to think about other people's ideology. Anyway, but even from your own point of view, you know, what kind of assumptions you make about human nature? I mean, are they selfish or partly altruistic or self, sorry, rational or irrational? You know, all of these have to be assumed when you're theorizing. And many of these have basically ideological basis. I mean, not all of them, but you know, many of these things do. So we cannot, I mean, create that completely ideology-free economics. But I think that what we can do is, first of all, that the researchers are to be clear about their positions. So okay, I mean, you cannot declare that sorry, write your own intellectual autobiography for every article you write, but you know. Basically, you have to clear where your theory comes from and what kind of assumptions you are making, so that at least people can know this guy comes from this kind of theoretical tradition, or he is making these kind of assumptions, which must mean that he has this political view, has this ethical view, and so on. And that also, sorry, the second thing you can do is to. Teach uh, students and citizens uh, critical thinking when they approach economics. Yeah? The first uh, the, the starting point of this is uh, to tell people that economics is not like physics. Yeah? You have to understand that there are many different theories, all based on different uh, the, the assumptions about uh, human nature, nature of uh, society, political values, ethical values, yeah? and that uh, let's uh, learn about these different theories and uh, see what their relative weaknesses and strengths are. That way, people can learn economics in a critical way. Then they'll be better able to make judgments. When they are confronted with a particular proposition, they can say, no, but that's coming from this particular point of view. If we take another point of view, that is not necessarily the right decision. Thanks. Um, yeah, to come in on your question about education, I 100% think it would need to be taught as a subject that is contested, exactly like Arjun said. I think there's several reasons for that. Um, firstly, 
we've found in our own work in schools that you will get much more people interested in the subject if you don't present it as economics, but you present it as what it's really about. Um, you'll tell people that you're going to do an economics workshop and they won't come. You'll tell them that you're going to do a session about salaries and wages and prices and jobs and healthcare and education, and suddenly they're a lot more interested. Um, so fundamentally, I think that any uh, mass campaign to try and get economics into schools and into education needs to, in doing so, to increase enthusiasm and just demand, if we're going to use economics language to describe it, reform the way that it talks about itself to really get people engaged in the subject. Um, secondly, I think for it to be, for it to assume the role that we're talking about in terms of for economists to start seeing themselves as people working in a, in a political sphere, in a sphere that is uh, embedded in value judgments and in history, it has to be taught that way from, from day one. Um, so it would be wrong to kind of relegate that to the humanities. Um, also, there is just a huge array of economic theories that get discarded from economics education, which, like Hajun has already pointed out, is a value judgment and in no way based on the fact that they're somehow not useful. Um, quite the contrary, I think you'll find that a lot of economics uh, that currently wouldn't be taught in a curriculum could in fact be very helpful for understanding the world around us, and that's what the student campaign Rethinking Economics is all about. Um, so presenting economics, again, from day one as something that has multiple perspectives and a history of a multiple like range of schools of thought will immediately show people that it's about a lot more than they thought it was, that it's a lot more debatable than they thought it was, and a lot more political than they thought it was. Uh, and I think just present a much more honest picture of the subject from the very beginning uh, in a way that will hopefully guide it towards assuming the right amount of responsibility in society and kind of taking its rightful place among a whole range of disciplines. Uh, just quickly, I'm actually in favour of compulsory economics education at school. I wouldn't make it too feely touchy though in terms of, <laughs> of, of having people um, making it about their people getting people into it through some sense that it pertains to their personal circumstances. I think that it's much more important to try to treat it impersonally, whilst at the same time recognising that there are these competing theoretical traditions that it's very difficult to escape um, value um, judgments, because I think that the point in which people need to be able to think about it is to think about collective political questions. Mm. And if we go in through trying to make it about this is really relevant to your day-to-day -day life, I'm not sure that it encourages the kind of thinking that is required about big collective questions. I would, I'd pro I disagree though, just on the level of the fact that people, people respond to economics news in relation to how they make personal decisions. So things like taking out a mortgage or, or things like deciding how to, where to put your pension or whether to even start saving for one. People will make those decisions off the back of what they hear in the budget or on the back of what they hear in the news about the economy. Um, and therefore, it's something that I think is, I agree with you that you should definitely think about economics in terms of a collective a democratic responsibility. Um, but it does also affect the way that we make our day-to-day -day choices. And even in terms of how bigger political questions that are fundamentally about the economy will relate to our personal choices. So for example, will we move? I mean, Brexit, is a, I'm, I'm from Germany, for example. Am I going to leave the UK as a result of Brexit without having a passport? I don't know. But there's a personal decision that isn't me taking a political action, but is how I would respond to a political action that is directly related to my understanding of, of the economy. Um, yeah. So, should we open back up? So many questions. <laughs> so many questions. Uh, okay, let's go to the back. I haven't been at the back for a while. Lady up here and the gentleman in the blue t-shirt. 
thinking about even what everybody's supposed to know about economics, say GDP, for example, it just doesn't make any sense that I receive from the mainland because they're saying, I mean, today the news is with the, the uh, BBC is saying, hurrah, we did 0.4% growth, as if that's something fantastic, and not mentioning it's more than what it was. Yes, but if what it was was 0.3, what's the difference? And it doesn't make sense. And such, uh, but it, um, China's GDP is 6.9. You know, it, it, when, you, when you talk about just GDP, or my personal favorite, the, the very simple supply and demand line, it's a straight line up. There's no such thing as a straight line up. Nothing goes in a straight line. And that's why we have crashes, because, like, like you said, the small. Somebody says we're not going to have crash anymore. Not going to happen. Uh, things are never going to be bad anymore. Not going to happen. It doesn't, even what you understand about GDP, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and the, the one I like right now is uh, the guy who got the um, um, prize for knowledge. Virtual scholars. Or philosophy of economics. I mean, that's, that, that kind of thing sounds more logical to us rather than because I don't remember economics being this talked about before Brexit. Suddenly they are the you know the the the, 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 main, the seem to represent everything that is wrong. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of geniuses who make decisions uh, for investing, uh, personally in the house about jobs, um, about buying a car and that's all economics. It's just so concentrated on that word, which doesn't really make sense. <laughs> yeah, just a few, yeah. Okay. My question is for Andre. Andre said that the accuracy of questions is not scalable, it's more and more narrow-minded. Sorry, uh, can you speak up some? Yeah, my, my question is, ah. what is the potential for longer term talk? Longer term uh, talk going with economic thinking on this? Wow, right. Should we take one more question, just because there are lots to get yeah. through? Yeah, just a few rows down, this gentleman was white. So that should be the first one. Huh? Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, yes. Uh, a lot of economic theories uh, don't make sense. Uh, that's true. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, you know. Uh, 
know, like all theories, I'm, I'm sure if you talk to physicists, uh, they would uh, admit that uh, some of the theories don't make uh, everyday sense. Uh, but, you know, th some of these are just uh, kind of intellectual constructs uh, that, I mean, at least in the beginning were constructed to help us uh, think through complicated issues. Unfortunately, once uh, they take root, then they take their the, the life of their own. So then we become slaves uh, to these notions. Yeah? So GDP was a very useful tool in the beginning of figuring out, you know, the, for example, the, a lot of this uh, developed during the Second World War. So the uh, government, uh, in its effort to maximize its uh, Kind of ability to fight the war for the survival of uh, nations wanted to actually know how big the economy is in some way yeah so yeah that these numbers uh, came up and you know it was uh, in the beginning a useful tool now it's become our god you know so i mean People haven't been, uh, even economists haven't been totally blind about this uh, problem. So now you know, there are different ways of uh, the measuring our welfare. You know, some people use happiness index. You know, there are the, there's the, this uh, OECD Better Life Index, which uses uh, something like 37 or whatever that <coughs> sort of number indicators covering lots of different things, including job security. You know crime statistics, you know, community life. And so, yes, I mean, we, we need to be aware that uh, these uh, the theories that uh, are, I mean, very often gross uh, simplifications of uh, reality uh, and, and take them as uh, what they are. You know, they are just a heuristic device uh, to help us understand the world. Unfortunately, they uh, tend to become our uh, goals and uh, our overlords. Yeah? Now, the short-term versus long-term, <clears throat> yes, I think that the one problem with the, our economy in the recent period has been the increasing tendency towards the, the short-term uh, profit-making. So one very good uh, indicator is uh, that the average period of uh, shareholding, namely you buy a share of a company and have it in your position, uh, sorry, the period during which you have it in your position, this used to be over five years in the 1960s in this country. Yeah? Now it's that, uh, that close to six months. Yeah? So basically that the uh, supposed owners of these companies, the shareholders, don't have any commitment uh, to uh, the companies. Yeah? You know, one justification of uh, ownership is that you are more committed to it and you'll take better care of the asset. Yeah? So typically, if you live in a rented house, you will take a bit less uh, good care of the property as the owner. You know, that's a typical justification. Now, the world is run by I mean, the owners who are not really interested in that, uh, maintaining the asset, namely the company in the long run. Yeah? And this has uh, yeah, seeped into the way we understand uh, the economy, you know, I mean, the share prices that uh, rise and fall and, uh, you know, government uh, approval ratings that uh, rise and fall according to quarterly growth uh, statistics. But as you, I mean, many of you have pointed out, I mean, what's the difference between 0.6% you know, uh, growth and 0.4% growth? We don't even know. Yeah? 
these are manufactured numbers. Yeah? But that, uh, because uh, this uh, short-term thing has become so important, now we have, uh, I mean, the companies and governments are focusing on producing short-term results with you know, the negative consequences for, for the long term. Because, for example, for a company, making uh, the, the, the best way to make a short-term profit is not to invest. Yeah? Yeah, in the short run, it's great, yeah, because uh, you have a higher profit, uh, you can give more dividends uh, to your shareholders, but in the long run, it's not going to hurt the company. Yeah? So that, uh, this kind of uh, issue is uh, one of the most uh, serious underlying uh, problems of our time. And I mean, I don't have uh, time to go into the details, but uh, not, uh, thank you for bringing that up. I can this um, fact question. I mean, I certainly think that there's a role for academic expertise ex um, to be brought to bear in, in analysis that is offered to governments. And I think one of the things that academic expertise can do is, is to bring long-term timeframes to bear on these questions, because often the kinds of analysis that civil servants will end up doing uh, is but by the very nature of the jobs that they're doing going to be caught up in short-term um, considerations. I also think there is a role for um, academics to not impart facts, but to encourage the dissemination of knowledge and the dissemination of facts um, to citizens, because it is important that citizens, when it comes to voting, realize that there is no way in which what politicians are going to offer you at election time, and I'm not talking about the referendum because it's a different kind of mm -hmm. election, um, I'll get off you at the election time is anything that's fact based is you have to recognize and start from the fact that politicians fight election campaigns to try to win elections to try to use all kinds of different influences including appealing to your subconscious uh, and is, is whether something's true or not is really neither here nor there this is why there's kind of a lot of the arguments that claims that are made about somehow the Brexit referendum being some descent into post-truth politics mm. is just nonsense because there's no place for truth in electoral politics. Mm. It misunderstands what the nature of elections mm. um, are and have ever been. I mean, you can see that not even just in representative democracies, but going back to what went on in the Athenian you know, assembly. Mm. Um, you know, if the Athenians had actually been presented with facts, they never would have, the Athenian citizens, they never would have voted to go, uh, go to war with Sicily, which then had disastrous consequences mm. for um, Athens. So a lot of the time, what you want facts for as citizens is to be able to realize when politicians are trying to pull the wool over your eyes and persuade you of things that simply aren't, um, aren't true. So in that sense, facts are, are really are important and knowledge really is important. And it's a question about what use it's being, what, what use it's being made for. But as I say, it's a question of like making sure people distinguish between who has got at least some interest in principle in communicating knowledge and not mistaking them for politicians because they simply don't and can't mm -hmm. by the very nature of what they're doing. Next round of questions. There's those gentlemen at the back.
more questions, if you could put your hands back up, sorry. Uh, this gentleman down here, and then you here in the green t-shirt, yeah. Okay, I mean, North Korea's problem isn't that it's a sovereign state. North Korea's problem is, is that those who have sovereign power within North Korea decide to do some catastrophically stupid things with it. Uh, if we took at the, then comparing um, where sovereignty is in terms of whether Britain's inside or outside the, the European Union, either there are institutions, parliament and the executive in this country that make decisions, all those decisions are going to be made somewhere um, in the European Union. Now, either side, wherever they're made, can decide to do things that are trade inhibiting or trade advancing. But it doesn't change the question about where the legal authority to decide lies. Right. Uh, yeah, on how so many, well, not exactly lies, but uh, you know, it's, uh, misleading uh, arguments are there uh, in our um, <coughs> consciousness. Uh, well, it's uh, the, not just, uh, I mean, particular group of people that is the problem. It's the, the whole system. Yeah? So the education system, you know, the media, you know, the, the academia, the politicians, you know, of course, I'm not uh, the saying that every bit of it, everyone is like that. But, you know, the, in any system, I mean, the, you have the tendency of uh, uh, tendency that, 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 you know, ideas that are good for the preservation of the status quo is that uh, encouraged and ideas that are not, is not, yeah? And you don't even have to actively lie to, to do this. You know, for example, the, my favorite example in this uh, regard is Singapore. Eh? 
know, when you read about Singapore in financial press, standard books on economics, you'll only hear about this uh, free trade policy and its uh, welcoming attitude uh, towards uh, foreign investors, which it has. Huh? But you will never hear that 90% of land in Singapore is owned by the government, 85% of housing is uh, supplied by government-owned housing corporation, and 22% of output is produced by state-owned enterprises. Yeah, so you don't have to actively lie about uh, Singapore. By simply not mentioning the other half, you give the impression that it has become in, uh, successful entirely because of this uh, free trade uh, policy. Yeah? Yeah, so it, uh, in that way, it, uh, very naturally, you can actually mold the way the people think. And, you know, I mean, uh, if you are advocating uh, theories that uh, justify the status quo, I mean, uh, you are actually uh, very safe, you know. I mean, can you imagine sort of, uh, the, I don't know, the pharmacists or medical doctors advancing a theory equivalent to uh, this uh, the free market uh, economic theory that uh, created this uh, the, the financial crisis in 2008 and these people just uh, keeping their jobs, yeah? No, I mean, they'll be the, the, the lucky, the, you know, if uh, someone created some medicine which is supposed to cure every depression and it actually killed thousands of patients, you know, this guy will be, you know, hunted down and, the, the, you know, the hanged and quartered, yeah? But the, how many economists have uh, lost jobs uh, and even prestige following this financial crisis, yeah? I mean, the, did the Nobel the Prize Committee deprive uh, the Professor Lucas of his uh, Nobel Prize because uh, he made this uh, outrageous statement that uh, we know how to start, uh, prevent uh, depression? No. You know, he that, uh, kept his that, that, that prestige, you know, kept his Nobel Prize, lived very happily, you know. So, you know, when you're advocating idea that, that uh, kind of advocates the status quo, this is what happens even if you completely mess up. Yeah? Whereas, uh, if you try to, you know, the bring out the, the contrarian ideas, you know, people will ignore you, the, they'll say you are the, the not serious, you know. So the, this is how the system preserves itself, yeah? But of course, over time, I mean, people keep making these uh, different arguments. And, you know, compared to 200 years ago, we are living in a much better world, you know. No child labor, both for women, you know, no slavery, you know. So the, the, the world progresses, but uh, very slowly because of this uh, the tendency of uh, systems to preserve uh, the status quo. Yeah, I think uh, I think a lot of your question is answered in that. I think uh, on your on your question of why they're not at this festival, I'd say by and large, mainstream and orthodox economists are overrepresented uh, in the economic space. If you look at most conferences in relation to economics and the economy, they will have mainly mainstream voices. Um, so, in fact, I think we need to create more spaces like this uh, where you have conversation happening that is critical of the discipline. Um, on the question of, of accountability, I think, yeah, you, you've, said, you've said it really. I think there is, you know, we need to be careful when we're talking about experts who we really mean. If we're saying orthodox economists themselves, it becomes, it's the question that we've kind of been circling around for the whole conversation really of what an economist is really for and what their job should really be. When an economist is playing a role of advising a politician or advising a policymaker, 
they can technically absolve themselves of blame and say, well, I, I wasn't actually the one who put the policy in place, or I wasn't the person who was elected, or I, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit easier for them to kind of escape away from responsibility, even if, like I just said, it's, it's their policy and their idea that is, is informing what's really happening. Um, so I think it becomes very difficult to pinpoint whose fault what is, and that makes accountability very hard. I think the only thing that we can do, uh, and it sounds a bit lofty and vague, but it would be for me to develop a citizenry that is able to challenge uh, these predictions more, that is able to call out these behaviours before it's too late, so to speak, um, turn economics into something that everyone is, is talking about and that everyone is engaging with, so that perhaps some of these theories can be called out a little bit sooner. Um, and that, that's really the only idea I have so far. Let's, oh no, we can't take a final round of questions unless someone puts their hands up really quickly and, wait. Okay, <laughs> lady at the back, she's the first person next question. Sorry, everyone. Yeah, I, I wouldn't dispute that experts can can bring um, inform people about the nature of power, whether that be the power within Britain or whether that power be within the power of the European Union. What I'm saying is, is that ultimately they can't resolve the question of what political community people want to belong to, whether they want to belong and be ruled in relation to a British nation state or whether they want to be um, ruled and belong, sorry, ruled uh, by and belong to a European um, political community. That is ultimately, as I say, a question of people's ideals that they may get to by their values or their identities. And that question, as opposed to where at the moment does power lie and what is the relationship between the two is not something I think that academic experts can resolve or should try to resolve either. I think that is now all that we have time for. Thank you very much for coming and for your questions.